0: So we're obviously jumping into a difficult topic this morning, as I said earlier, slaves and masters. And of course, as soon as you hear those words, you can't help but think of American slavery, glaring inconsistencies of so many Christians. I mean, how could so many believers live with slavery that was so prevalent and so horrible? Surely it flew in the face of Christian morals, specifically the fact that we're all made in the image of God and therefore deserve just and fair treatment. Well, the truth is, there were some, including a man by the name of John Gerardo. Gerardo was born in 1825 in South Carolina to parents with a Huguenot background, so a home where the good news of the gospel and the Lord Jesus were spoken of often. Our family devotions were the norm, and the Lord's Day was regularly observed. Now, it certainly wasn't a perfect home. I'm not arguing that it was a perfect home. The Girardos did have slaveries as John was growing up, like most homes in South Carolina. But that reality only compelled him all the more that after he came to faith and felt called to the ministry, he had a deep conviction to stay where he was so that he could minister the good news of the gospel to both black and white, slave and free. So he would regularly preach to the white congregation in the morning and the black congregation in the afternoon. He also systematically preached to slaves on surrounding plantations, often on porches or inside master's homes, and never, ever insulted the intelligence of the slaves, but instead used the same order of service for both black and white gatherings, and taught them all the same solid gospel hymns to sing. So Gerardo clearly believed all men should be treated equal. He had a goal of lifting the black education level to such an extent that the Second Presbyterian Church began a new work in Charleston, specifically for the black slaves in that city. So Gerardo mobilized the slave owners in 1850 to build a church that would seat 600 people, which grew from 36 members in 1854 to 600 members in 1860 with a regular Sunday morning attendance of 1,500 people. And it grew for a couple of reasons. The first was Gerardo's faithful preaching of the gospel. He faithfully preached the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second was the church's outstanding teaching program. See, the striking thing about this church was their perseverance in teaching slaves and not only reading and writing, but catechisms, scripture memories, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and of course, the Word of God. So by 1860, they outgrew that building and decided to build the biggest sanctuary in Charleston with a seating capacity of 2,500 people. And by conscious choice the members named it zion church with the back men of the congregation leading the charge in all that was done there which was unheard of in that day now why am i telling you this well because i want you to know there are men who live in the midst of this broken world even in the midst of chattel slavery and yet have a godly, biblical view of people, regardless of the color of their skin, who prioritize the gospel, believing it and living it out, treating people fairly, loving others with equality and justice, compassion and mercy, and are faithful to proclaim the good news of the gospel to all people, regardless of the color of their skin. So here's my goal this morning. Not to interact on this topic as if slavery isn't wrong or that the treatment of blacks in the South wasn't horrible. It absolutely was. But to keep Paul's context in view and the gospel as primary so that we as believers might live as broken people in the midst of a broken world with a biblical perspective, a godly attitude, and with righteous actions. In all that we do, treating people justly and fairly, loving them equally, and faithfully proclaiming the good news of the gospel to everyone. Before we read our passage, allow me to just put it in context. You can go ahead and open up to Ephesians. As you know, chapter 4, verse 1 marks the turning point in the book of Ephesians where Paul moves from theology to practice. So it's a pretty massive shift in the book from doctrine to duty or, or the indicative who we are in Christ to the imperative how we should live as believers in Christ. So Ephesians chapter 1 to 3 was all about this glorious explanation of how we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. How we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now are alive together with Christ and how we've been brought near by the blood of the cross and united together, chapter 2, verse 15, into this one new man. And then chapters 4 to 6 are all about how we live that out. But specifically, if your Bibles are open, look at chapter 5, verse 15. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Why? He tells us. Because the days are evil. Therefore, verse 18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then here's the jump-off point for this entire section. Submitting to one another, how? Out of reverence to Christ. And there's three things. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands, how? Out of reverence to Christ. Chapter 6, verse 1, children submit to your parents, how? Out of reverence to Christ. And now, chapter 6, verse 5, slaves submit to your masters, how? Out of reverence to Christ. So Paul's dealing here with what theologians call the household codes. Essentially, how our submission to Christ works itself out in our everyday relationships of life. Namely, husbands and wives, children and parents and slaves and masters. But it's all grounded on our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. So first and foremost, how we're submitting to Him, His rule, His reign, His lordship in our lives, which empowers us to submit to every other earthly, lower, lesser authority, whether they're kind and merciful and godly, or they're harsh, cruel, dictatorial, wicked and ungodly. So that clarification in and of itself is absolutely critical, even as we read our text this morning. So if you would, grab my outline from your bulletins, title of my sermon, as I said, Slaves and Masters, three points this morning, reality of slavery, regulation of slavery, implications of slavery. Follow along as I read chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. Paul says, bondservants. servants, Whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So, point number one the reality of slavery. Our goal here is to compare and contrast A, slavery in Paul's day, with B, slavery. In American history because those two are significantly different so it's important for us to understand both the similarities and the differences so we don't unwittingly import modern ideas of American slavery into the biblical context so let me start with some of the distinctives of Roman slavery number one racial factors played no role in Paul's day so slavery in American colonies obviously involved taking black slaves by force From their African homes and shipping them as cargo, cruel and unusual punishment to say the least, as testified by men like Equiano in his well-known autobiography. In contrast, Roman slavery had nothing to do with race or nations or, or a particular people group. Instead, people from every land could be enslaved because the most common source of slaves in Rome were prisoners of war. That or they were born into slavery or lost their jobs or had gambling addictions or made bad investments, actually sold themselves into slavery. But again, the most common source of slaves in Paul's day were prisoners of war. For example, guys like Joseph in Egypt or Daniel in Babylon. If you remember, Nebuchadnezzar absolutely destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC and enslaved the best of the best. All of the young men who were skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding and learning, and were competent to stand in the king's palace. That's a direct quote from Daniel chapter 1, verse 4, which brings me to distinction number two. Slaves in Paul's day worked a variety of jobs and positions. So in contrast to America, where slavers were treated like animals, Daniel wasn't treated like that at all. He was a noble, and he was tremendously qualified. So in Paul's day, they weren't confined to a life of hard labor, working for free to enrich their owners, but instead served as doctors and lawyers, teachers and accountants, managers and overseers, secretaries and sea captains. Again, why is that? Well, because they were prisoners of war. So they were immediately employed, might even be educated and trained so they could jump in and improve the country that just conquered them. And by way of motivation to get the highest level of work out of them, they were often promised freedom after a specified number of years. So distinction number three. Most slaves in Paul's day expected to be freed sometime during their lifetime. In fact, a great number were released by the time they turned 30 years old. Apparently, Caesar Augustus declared 30 to be the minimum age to be freed And then he set a limit, picking the exact number of slaves to be freed each and every year. By contrast, as you know, slaves in the American colonies had no hope of freedom. Which brings us to the last distinction, which I think highlights the radical difference between slavery in Paul's day and slavery in American history. Number four, Roman slaves often became Roman citizens with all the same rights and privileges, freedoms, and benefits as the rest of the people of Rome, without any residual racism or consequences. So obviously, radical differences between slavery in Paul's day and slavery in American history. But before I move on, let me just highlight the similarities and acknowledge just how cruel and horrific Wrong and wicked be slavery in American history really was. It's really helpful for you to know that passages like Ephesians 6, 5 to 9 were actually used by Christians in order to justify slavery, which was absolutely wrong and wicked and ungodly. And I believe that we as believers in our current context need to at least at minimum acknowledge that reality and recognize that's a very real part of American history. So similarities. Number one, slavery was quite common in Paul's day as it was in the South. In fact, Tom Schreiner estimates 20% of the Roman population were slaves. So in Rome, listen to this, 10 million slaves out of 50 million people. But the South was essentially no different, just on a smaller scale. So in 1790, 18% of the population were slaves, with a total number of people enslaved in the South of 700,000 people. So it's a very real problem, a common problem, a horrific, terrible problem affecting significant amounts of people. And even though slavery in Paul's day had some distinctions, I've listed them, slavery is still slavery. And slavery, by definition, is the ownership of another person as property, which, again, is wrong and wicked sinful, and terrible. In fact, Keith Bradley is really helpful here summarizing the situation in his book, Slavery and Society, saying the bare record of fact shows that Roman slaves, like those in the Americas, were bought and sold like animals. They were punished indiscriminately and violated sexually. They were compelled to labor, as their masters dictated, and were allowed no legal existence at least while slaves and were goaded into compliance through intimidation ultimately they were victims of exploitation so let me just be clear slavery is wrong treating people as property is wrong racism is wrong violence is wrong murder harsh treatment injustice beatings rape intimidation and exploitation are all wrong they're wicked and they're sinful and the bible doesn't encourage or condone any of that behavior in fact i would encourage you to write these passages down Revelation 18.13 indicts Rome for its materialism and its licentiousness, including the practice of buying and selling human beings. And Paul condemns slavery outright in 1 Timothy 1.10, highlighting it in a list of sins, including murder, sexual immorality, enslaving people, lying, cheating, stealing, and doing whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So according to Paul, the kidnapping and selling of slaves is to be considered a heinous crime, contrary to the gospel. In addition, Paul tells those who are enslaved that if you're able to gain your freedom, you should absolutely do so. 1 Corinthians 7.21 But at the end of the day, There's something so much greater than a person's station in life, including being a slave or a master for that matter. Because a person's social status should not be prized or despised. And why is that? Because this broken world is ultimately passing away. So believers are commanded to rise above all of that and to look forward to the age to come. To the new creation in our heavenly home where righteousness will ultimately reign and rule and reside for all eternity. Which is why the New Testament writers, including Paul, do not advocate for toppling the social system of their day, but instead regulating it. Similar, if you will, to divorce. I mean, Malachi 2:16 tells us that God hates divorce. And yet. We have Moses in the Old Testament regulating it. And Jesus and Paul in the New Testament giving exceptions, specifically infidelity and abandonment, in order to regulate it. But why is that? Well, because mankind is sinful. We're wicked. So the reality is we live as broken people in a broken world. And therefore, sinful institutions like divorce, like slavery... Are regulated for God's greater glory. So, as we move from number one, the reality of slavery, to number two, the regulation of slavery, I want to reread our passage. But this time, listen to how often Paul highlights the Lord Jesus and our relationship to him, because what matters most is not one's social status or position, but one's relationship to God. More specifically, their relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, follow along. Listen to how many times he references the Lord Jesus. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. As you catch, the fact that the Lord Jesus is highlighted literally in every single verse, look again. We're not going to miss this. Verse five: Bond servants obey your earthly masters how, as you would Christ. Verse six: Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but how, as bond servants of Christ. Verse seven: Rendering service with a good will how, as to the Lord, and not to man. Verse eight: Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from who, from the Lord. Last but not least, verse 9, masters do the same, knowing that he, the Lord, is both their master and yours, and there is no partiality with him. So literally, every verse, every comment, every command to both the slave and to the master is grounded in their relationship to the Lord Jesus. So Paul's clearly speaking to Christians in the church. But don't miss the fact that he addresses bond servants directly right verse 5 bondservants obey your masters as you would Christ so paul addresses the christian slaves in this community as free moral agents capable of thinking for themselves acting for themselves making decisions for themselves and taking full responsibility for their lives which you need to understand was unheard of in paul's day so given the context of roman slavery it's remarkable that paul addresses slaves at all but he does why? Because they're fully accepted members of the church. So back in Ephesians 2:15, when Paul says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, killing the hostility, he wasn't just talking about Jews and Gentiles, but by extension, by implication, all kinds of people. In fact that's why Paul says in Galatians 3:28 there is neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free male nor female for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And yet it's not surprising at all that Paul calls these slaves to obey their masters. That would have been totally expected. Obedience was a given. But what is surprising is that he speaks directly to both the manner and the motivation for doing so. So at least three things he highlights under number one, the manner of obeying. Starting with fear and trembling. Verse 5: Bond servants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now, what's incredible here is that's the same language we hear all over the Old Testament. God causing there to be fear and trembling on nations, specifically in response to the people of God. But we're all supposed to have that orientation to God, aren't we? I mean, just think about Psalm 2. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, serve the Lord. How should you serve the Lord? With fear and trembling. Or how about Philippians chapter 2, where Paul commands us to work out our salvation? How are we supposed to work out our salvation? With fear and trembling. But now Paul's applying that same language to how slaves are supposed to obey their masters with fear and trembling, which makes total sense just as soon as you recognize every earthly authority has been placed over us by a sovereign God, by a greater authority. So to be disrespectful, disregarding, or disingenuous, obey your masters with a sincere heart, would be wrong. Why? because you're ultimately serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us to be without people-pleasing. Verse 6 says, Not by way of eye service as people-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. So slaves are not called and commanded to serve their masters simply to make a good impression, simply to, to look good on the outside, but should serve with pure motives, as he just said, with a sincere heart. So people-pleasing is wrong and is wicked. And Paul wants these Christian slaves to know he repudiates any form of service that is motivated simply by appearance, simply to make yourself look good. So how you behave when the master turns his back is just as important as the way you behave when he's front and center and present. So superficial service is what he's talking about when he says be by way of eye service as people-pleasers. Because believers have a higher calling than that, don't they? Notice how Paul says, verse 6, But as bondservants of Christ. So believing slaves should be motivated to serve their human masters, knowing they're ultimately serving the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, if you will, they're ultimately slaves of Christ. So they belong to someone who has far greater authority, and deserves far more honor and respect and loyalty and allegiance than any earthly slave owner. As slaves of Christ, they serve someone whom God has exalted, we've heard in Ephesians, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So these slaves belong and serve, ultimately, the greatest master of of all and their status needs to be should be has to be derived from ultimately belonging to him and to him alone not their human masters so obey with fear and trembling obey with out people pleasing and now, see, obey with an orientation towards God, which is just another way of saying what he's been saying the whole time. Verse seven rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So ultimately, serve with a great attitude. Why? Because you're serving the Lord your God, which is why it doesn't ultimately matter if you have a fair slave owner or a wicked slave owner a master who encourages you, educates you, trains you, and promises you freedom just as soon as you turn 30, or is absolutely horrible. Now please don't misunderstand me. I'm not minimizing the differences between those two experiences. They're obviously radically different. But Paul's saying... To serve the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength for the believing slave means you serve your earthly master with a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, regardless of how hard that might be or what kind of owner you might have. Now let me just pause, because I know this is really hard. This is difficult stuff that we're talking about. How do you serve a totally ungodly, unjust master? How do you be married to an ungodly, unjust man? How do you as a child grow up perhaps with an ungodly, unjust parent? All of those situations are difficult. But it's also why I believe Paul immediately moves to number two, the motivation for obeying. Look again at verse 7 and 8. Paul says rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Why? What's the motivation? Because you know that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. And notice that's true whether you're a bond servant or a free person in the Lord. So the motivation is that every single one of us live before the all-seeing eye of God. And it's all part of God's good plan of redemption, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we are alive together with Christ and we're redeemed specifically to be zealous for good works. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So Paul specifically wants these dear Christian slaves to know their good works will be noticed. Every single one of them by their loving heavenly master who truly cares for them and promises to reward them accordingly. Now just think about how encouraging that is. To know that that God sees absolutely everything especially when you're in a situation like this, especially when you're serving somebody who is ungodly, and yet you are faithfully obeying with fear and trembling, without people pleasing and with a right orientation towards God. Maybe even obeying your earthly master with all dignity and respect, even enduring sorrows while suffering unjustly. In fact, do you know, if you think Ephesians 6 is hard, you should read 1 Peter. Read 1 Peter chapter 2 and 3. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 says, Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Why? For this finds favor with God. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And why is that? Ultimately, Peter tells us, verse 21, because you're following in Christ's footsteps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. So the motivation is that surely the God of all the earth will do what is right. So entrust yourself to Him because He sees all things and He always judges justly. So what does that mean, practically speaking? It means keep your eyes fixed on eternity. Knowing that even though you're facing the most difficult of days, thankless tasks, hardships, beatings, and things too terrible to even speak of, God sees it all. And God promises a future reward that has been better than anything you ever could imagine on this earth. Right, 2 Corinthians 4.17 For this momentary light of affliction is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. That doesn't minimize this momentary light affliction. This is horrible. This is wrong. This is wicked. This is sinful. You don't have to minimize that. To acknowledge that it is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Which brings us to be the duty of masters. And can you believe Paul essentially says the exact same thing to these guys? Which is incredible if you can hear it through the lens of their context because he says, verse 9, masters, do the same to them. Do the same to who? Masters, do the same to your bondservants, your slaves. So masters, treat your slaves in the same way I'm calling them to treat you. Lead them. With fear and trembling, respond to them, not by way of eye service or as people pleasers trying to impress your other master friends, but by doing the will of the Lord. So treating your slaves as people made in the image of God who are your fellow heirs with Christ. And the only specific manner of leading that is highlighted, notice verse 9. You might be like, where are you getting all that from? Look at verse 9. He tells them, stop your threatening. Which is incredible. I I don't know. I could summarize all that a master would do as threatening. And he says, stop it. Stop your threatening. Which means that Christian slave owners should live radically different than the world around them. Again, Paul's not arguing that Christians can somehow eradicate the wickedness from this wicked world or unbreak the brokenness. But he is saying, lead radically different. So rather than threatening, barking, beating, bullying, yelling, whipping, and trying to motivate your slaves using negative, demeaning, derogatory, and abusive strategies, instead stop your threatening. And what? What would be the opposite of threatening? Wouldn't it be serving them, encouraging them, Spurring them on to love and good deeds, being kind and tender hearted, walking in love as Christ loved them and gave himself up for them, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, Ephesians 5 2. Do you hear how radically different that would be in contrast to worldly masters? Who Keith Bradley, as we already heard, said bought and sold their slaves like animals, punished them indiscriminately, violated them sexually, and goaded them into compliance through intimidation, ultimately making them victims of exploitation. Yeah, I think that would be radically different. So, what's the motivation for leading or serving radically different than the world and in a manner similar? to what we've experienced in the Lord Jesus Christ, even though as a master you sit in a position of authority. Paul tells them, verse 9, because God is the ultimate master of both slave and free, and with him there is no partiality. So again, a person's social status should not be prized or despised because this present broken world is ultimately passing away. So believers are commanded to rise above all that and look forward to the age to come when we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and receive our rewards for the things we have done in the body, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5.10 So the motivation is that surely the God of all the earth will do what is right in the end. Which, by the way, it makes me think of Paul's letter to Philemon. If you're not familiar, Philemon is the master of a slave by the name of Onesimus. And Paul's writing to advise Philemon on the situation because he's decided to send Onesimus back to Philemon. So it appears Onesimus is a runaway slave. But somehow got connected with Paul, heard the gospel, came to faith in the Lord Jesus. But in Paul's letter, he doesn't focus on their respective stations in life. He doesn't focus on the reality that this is a master and a slave and ask Philemon to liberate Onesimus. Instead, if you read it, Paul focuses on their relationship in Christ. And he appeals to a higher relationship altogether, if you will, their eternal relationship and exhorts them to live as Christians. Knowing their good works, every single one of them will be known by their heavenly Father who cares for them deeply, promises to reward them individually, both slave and master, according to their actions, whether good or evil. So Paul says, verse 16, Philemon, receive Onesimus back, no longer as a bondservant, no longer as a slave, but as so much more than that, as your beloved brother. In Christ. Now, do you see how there's something so much greater than a person's station in life, including being a slave or a master? Because a person's social status should not be prized or despised because this present broken world is ultimately passing away. So believers are commanded to rise above that and look forward to the age to come, to the, to the new creation, to the heavenly city where righteousness will rule and reign and reside for all eternity. And we look forward to that because it's ultimately the Lord our God whom we serve. But what do we do with all of that as we move to number three, the implications of slavery? Another way to ask the same question is, how is any of this helpful in our current culture? I mean, last time I looked, slavery isn't an acceptable social structure. But there obviously is a remnant of the evil still lingering in our culture. In fact, it seems to come up on a daily basis all over the media and in everything we read, primarily because of the racial crimes, the racial tensions that are happening. Seems like on a daily basis. But how exactly does this passage help with any of that? Well, the first thing I would say is we have to have a, a right orientation to justice. Now, the phrase we hear all the time, especially in the media, is social justice. But I would ask what justice isn't social Because God designed us to live in community, as we've seen so clearly over the course of this past year with the worldwide pandemic. My point is that all injustice affects all people. As one author, Thaddeus Williams says, talking about injustice that isn't social is like talking about water that isn't wet or a square without right angles. Because the Bible is crystal clear, God doesn't just suggest justice. He commands that we do justice. Then he quotes appropriately Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of us but to do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God? So justice is the clarion call of all of Scripture, and those who plug their ears to it are simply not living according to the Word of God. But what exactly is justice? That's the question. You know, Jesus launched his public ministry declaring his mission to proclaim good news to the poor, recovering sight to the blind, and setting at liberty those who are being oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, Luke 4, 18-19. But Jesus obviously didn't seek justice at the level of headlines. So when he encountered a group of protesters over what they saw as a gross injustice of Sabbath day violations... He didn't just agree with them and apologize for what he was doing. No. Instead, he called out their unwarranted moral outrage and tried to set them straight. Again, my point is we have to be careful. We have to be discerning when it comes to justice. That's why Paul prayed that our love may abound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment and to take every thought captive to Christ, which includes the way we think about justice. So what exactly is the right response to injustice? Well, it has to start with God. And it has to start with the Word of God and what He declares to be just, which has to start with all people being created in His image. That's a given. That's how He created us, male and female. We're we're created Equally before the Lord our God. Justice has to start with God. It has to start with the Word of God. It has to include treating all people equally with justice and mercy, compassion and kindness, regardless of sex or the color of their skin or age for that matter, and abolishing human trafficking investing in ways to help the poor, the troubled, the destitute, supporting orphanages, housing the homeless, and absolutely has to include protecting the unborn. Just to name a few. But does that mean that our church should immediately take up every single one of those causes? No. I don't believe so. Instead, the church collectively is called to faithfully proclaim the gospel. But as a result, that gospel should impact individual minds and hearts and cause them to be moved and mobilized and engage each and every single one of these injustices. Do you see the distinction? The church has to keep the gospel front and central. But as that gospel is proclaimed, it should mobilize the people of God to engage those injustices so we must be those who have a right orientation to justice doing justice loving kindness and walking humbly with our god but we also must be those B, who have a right orientation to authority which starts first and foremost with god who is the ultimate authority So if you're not right with the ultimate authority, haven't submitted to His authority, to God's authority, then how could you ever submit to any other earthly authority, especially if it's unjust? So let me just say, if you've not yet believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, repented of your sin, and put your faith in His finished work on the cross, truly, Submitting to his rule, his reign, his lordship in your life, which actually empowers you to submit to every other earthly authority, whether kind and merciful or harsh and cruel. That's where you have to start this morning. Submitting to God's authority is absolutely foundational to having a right orientation to every other kind of earthly authority. In addition, I totally recognize that none of us is actually enslaved, so I'm not suggesting that we should think about our jobs like that. But by way of implication, we should do our work and serve our employers and respond to our bosses as unto the Lord. Because Paul grounds all that he says here in the fact that we as believers have a new identity in Christ. So in a very profound way, we are servants Of the Lord Jesus. So, according to these verses, number one, what's the right manner in which we should be living, especially as we think about the different authorities in our life? Well, according to Paul, we should treat our bosses and our managers, teachers, supervisors, and coaches with honor and respect. So, there should be a reverence for people in authority, whether they deserve it or not. And we should always do our work with a pure heart and a good attitude and a sincere faith. So we're not just performing when people are watching in order to be impressive. Instead, we're doing what is right, good, and godly all the time and giving God's will our top priority both in life and at work. And we absolutely need to stand up, obviously, for the oppressed. Especially when we're in a position to do so and we see injustice taking place. And why is that? Why do we need to engage that situation? Because we're ultimately serving the Lord our God. Number two, what's the right motivation for living like this? Well, it's recognizing that at the end of the age, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And what's so. Absolutely encouraging, and I would suggest terrifying all at the same time, is that God sees all that we do. He doesn't just see our actions, He sees the heart, He sees the motivation with absolute 100% clarity. That's why Hebrews 4 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You know what he says then? So no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are exposed before the eyes of him to whom we have to give an account. So again, First and foremost, we have to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. But then, I would suggest, it's living like John Gerardo, as broken people in the midst of a broken world doing the very best that we can to have a godly biblical view of people regardless of the color of their skin and prioritizing the gospel, believing it and living it out, treating people fairly, loving others with equality and justice, compassion and mercy and faithfully proclaiming the gospel to others, having a right orientation to justice and a right orientation to authority which flows from having a right orientation to the word of God and God's call on our lives. Summarized so well in Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of us but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before our God? May God give us the grace to do just that. If we could do just that. (laughs) right, to to do justice, to, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before our God. What a great prayer request for us as the people of God, that we would be a people who are faithful to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before our God. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, oh, how we need your help. Our culture is terrifying and is difficult to navigate. Father, I pray, first and foremost, that we would be right with you, that we would recognize that you are the ultimate authority and that you hold ultimate justice. And so we need to take ownership of our own sin, to repent, to believe, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, Father, you're so gracious to give us your Spirit, so we pray that we would be those who do justice, who love kindness, And, O Lord, I pray that you would help us to be those who walk humbly before the Lord our God. That we would be respectful, kind, and honoring to people who are different than us. That we would be like the Lord our God, that we would not show partiality. That we would be merciful. That we would be compassionate that we would be steadfast in our love for others. Father, that's a work that only you can do. And we pray that you would do it for our good and for your eternal glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.